Welcome to Mason Jars, the official podcast of MasonJars.com. I'm Karen Rusbecki, the president of Mason Jars Company, makers of Recap and the MasonJars.com marketplace. We're headquartered in Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm here to talk with makers, educators, and industry experts dedicated to their trade. Let's hear their story. Well, hey, um, Andy, welcome to the Mason Jars podcast. I'm happy to have you here. Um, you are the senior food safety educator for Penn State Extension. And, uh, you know, tell me, what is that? <laughs> right. So I'm actually part of a team of educators throughout Pennsylvania who work for Penn State Extension, and I'm part of the food safety and quality team. And what Penn State Extension does is takes the university's research, resources, and expertise out into the community. We work with individuals and organizations in many different areas, such as uh, you might have heard of our 4-H youth development program, mm -hmm. the Master Gardeners. We provide education in the areas of agronomy, natural resources, dairy, if you've got a, a dairy farm, we can talk to you about that. Horticulture, uh, probably apiary? missing somebody. What about apiary? We do. We have one of our most popular online courses is Beekeeping 101. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet. There's so many people getting into it. So you're a part of a team. And how many, how many folks are in your team? How many folks are in the extension? And then you're part of the extension, right? Correct. So uh, all in all, there's about 1,100 people associated with Penn State Extension across the state. That's huge. Um, it is. It is. <laughs> we, we cover all corners of the state. We also um, have a team of individuals educating folks in nutrition education, and they work with community partners to provide that education. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of us, specifically on the food safety team, uh, there's about 20 or so just off the top of my head. That's still a lot. A number. I mean, that's, yeah, that's big. I mean, it's for the whole state, of course. Um, wow. I, we, we used to have an extension office in Erie. I, I don't believe there is anymore. There's, there's an extension office in all of Pennsylvania's 67 counties. So oh, there's okay. still one in Erie. Yeah. Okay, great. They may yeah. have moved physical locations, but uh, we're, we're present all throughout the state. In every county. That's fantastic. I remember, you know, starting out with, uh, as, as a young adult and wanting to learn how to can and do things, they were invaluable to helping me start out. And I remember Rhonda Schember, I remember being able to, you know, call up anytime. And when I had a problem, they, you know, had the answers. So it's, it's such an amazing yeah. program. And I'm glad you brought that up. Folks can still call in. And if there's not somebody in the office that day, uh, the shout out goes to the statewide team and somebody will contact that person as fast as possible. We try to aim to get back definitely within the same day. Um, we know sometimes people are in the middle of doing something. So we try to respond to those requests as quickly as possible. Yeah, I, I think it's incredible. Now, uh, the extension is uh, part of the Penn State, as we mentioned, and that's a land-grant university. And do you know about that, a little bit about that? Like the, there's, there's, there's over 100 land-grant land universities, and I think they're, they have to have a portion of the university dedicated agriculture. Can you tell us about how this started? 
Yeah, so this started back in the 1800s, the 1860s. Actually, President Lincoln signed it uh, into into law through the the Morrill Act, and this was uh, designed to set up uh, a system to provide agricultural education out in the communities. And even here in Pennsylvania, the history is really interesting. So they used to take professors from state college and put them on trains and tour around the Commonwealth. And they would talk to people from these train platforms and people would come and that kind of birthed the idea of an extension system of we need something uh, put in place that's a little bit more robust than putting a couple people in a train and driving them around the, the state. So back in the early 1900s, we set up the, um, the extension system and each county um, incorporated their extension program in different years, um, but back in the early 1900s. So for the past few years or so, we've been celebrating the 100th anniversary of a Penn State extension in XYZ County around the area. So that's been fun to attend those events, hear about the history and the evolution of this, but a lot of things have been changed. We're still providing science-based information uh, based on Penn State's own research or other universities conducting research and translating that into practical application for individuals in the area of agriculture, which when we say agriculture, people think food and farming. And yes, farming is a very important part of agriculture, um, but we can expand that um, into food safety, for example, and preparing healthy meals and nutrition falls under agriculture. Um, so that's where our that's where our group comes in and and we educate folks on on food and health and nutrition and encourage them to to make good choices uh, when they're they're feeding their families. Right. So so how you didn't wake up one day and say, I, I want to be a, a food safety ed- educator. I mean, there must have been some sort of path uh, for your your personal path that got you where you are today. What what uh, what was that path? Sure. So I actually wanted to be a chef. But in high school, that's what I wanted to do. And my parents were okay with that, but they just wanted to make sure I knew, you know, what all was involved in that, that it it goes, owning a restaurant goes beyond just cooking. (laughs) Right. Um, And I sat down with a local restaurant owner that my, that my family knew. And she pointed out, uh, you know, there's book work to do and you have to pay some bills and you have to do the ordering and um, you have to hire people and fire people. And I thought, oh, well, I liked the cooking part of it. That other businessy stuff, oh, maybe not so much. Um, and she suggested, she said, you know, if I could go back, I would go to school and study food science. So I, I did that. I looked into uh, programs and what that meant for an undergraduate degree in food science. And it was a mix of my two favorite things, cooking and I enjoyed and did well in science classes in school. So it's really the practical application of science through the lens of food. And that's something that everybody can relate to. And there's components of chemistry when we're talking about how ingredients interact with each other and and flavors and colors, microbiology when it comes to food safety. So detecting 
pathogens and diseases that can be spread through food. There's engineering if you want to design new food equipment, mm-hmm. um, nutrition. So all these aspects uh, of different sciences coming together around food. So that's what I decided on. I actually went to Penn State for my undergraduate wow. degree. Uh, so it was great to come back years later to Penn State felt like felt like coming home. Did you spend a lot time, of time at the creamery? Was that Of course was, I did. So the food <laughs> science building is the upper floors of the creamery. So Perfect. I spent every day in the creamery and yes, it was very tempting <laughs> to want to go downstairs, grab a gigantic bowl of ice cream and then come back up uh and eat that in class. I I did that quite a few times. What's your favorite? Your favorite My, ice cream? My favorite ice cream is Berkey Brickle, and it's not one that they have all the time. So uh, a good standby for one that they do have all the time is peanut butter swirl. Sounds great. <laughs> How about so, you? Do you have a, Penn, a favorite I, Penn State I, I ice like cream the, flavor? Yeah, I like the peachy paterno. Um, and there's there's one, I don't know what it's called. They don't have it all the time, but it has some cherries and chocolate and you I think know, it's called Cherry Jubilee, maybe? Maybe. That sound right? Yeah, I don't know. But... Maybe I'm totally making that up. <laughs> There's people listening saying, no, 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 that's wrong. How yeah. dare you blaspheme the the, uh, the 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 Penn State Creamery. Right, so. for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, what that sounds like a like a dream education to me, you know, to go. Cherry Garcia. <laughs> oh, I think is that's that what it. it is? Yeah, I think, I think that's that, what it is. Could, okay. It could be it, but um, yeah. Folks so... can relax who are screaming it at their, their device. <laughs> Yes, uh, that would be like so awesome to to go to school and like learn about food, one of my favorite subjects, and 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 be right above the ice cream store. So doesn't get any better than that. Um, so you mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of things on on this path, uh, to to food safety. Is so, and you do outreach to the community. Do you also um, help entrepreneurs at all? Like, if if I wanted to create a a special herb blend for my salad dressings, and I want to commercialize it, would I be able to work with you guys to help understand the nutritional aspects and things like that? Absolutely. So we have a course called Food for Profit, and it's designed for people who want to start a food-related business. And we um, talk about the aspects of marketing and labeling and cost analysis, all those types of of business things, but then also point people in the direction of what type of license they may need to pursue, what type of certifications they may need to have, uh, such as food safety training certificates, and and get them going in that direction. We've got a whole department, um, community and economic development, um, who who help folks along through that process. Oh, that's great to hear. One of the things I I talk with a lot of people are be that are beekeepers, and um, like last year actually was a really good year for for honey production. And the folks that actually want to bring it to market, they end up doing some farmers markets and things like that, which are um, labor intensive. Um, plus last year, you know, a lot of things were shut down and a lot of people have a fear of, of selling it online. Uh, we have, we have an online marketplace, masonjars.com, and we'd love to get more, more honey producers, um, selling their honey on our marketplace. But there is a, 
um, maybe some misunderstandings of the complexity to bring it to market. I know there's certain licensing requirements and labeling requirements and things like that. Are you guys working with uh, beekeepers, apiaries in, in this aspect? I don't know if we have any people working specifically. I mean, I do know that we work with beekeepers. However, that's outside of the scope of my team. So I don't know of any particular work that I can or stories that I can share about that. But I do know that we that Penn State Extension does do work in that space, mm-hmm. as well as um, we put out a lot of resources during the COVID-19 pandemic. And some of those included ramping up online sales and, and how to make that jump. Oh, great, great. So the economic development side of things, not just uh, food safety. So I know you spend a, uh, you guys spend a lot of time uh, talking about preserving food, right? So uh, canning, freezing, you know, drying, and mm-hmm. uh, starting to kind of delve into fermenting because I know that's so popular now. Uh, there is uh, a lot of, of books. There's a lot of courses, a lot of information out there on fermenting. And uh, I think you guys are um, starting down the path. Can you talk a little bit about let's let's start with the canning um, water bath versus pressure cooker? <laughs> yeah, so uh, canning has become very popular. Actually, in the past couple of years, it has kind of had a, a resurgence of interest. People wanting to know where their food came from, have more control over the ingredients that go into it. So even before the pandemic, we saw an increased interest in home food preservation. But then last year, huge increases, and it was very difficult to find uh, supplies out in in the store, you know, new canning lids, new canning jars, people looking to buy pressure canners so that they could preserve their own food because people were concerned when they saw empty shelves at the store. And Uh, Similarly, we also saw a big interest in people wanting to learn how to grow their own food at home. So our master gardeners did a whole series uh, on victory gardens and kind of that old fashioned idea of of growing food at home for your family, even if you just have a small uh, amount of land. So a lot of people were interested in growing their own food last year then you have to do something with it come harvest time. So uh, we had the opportunity to provide education to lots of people throughout Pennsylvania, other states, and even other countries last year through a series of webinars where we gave a science background and then did a live demonstration uh, in our home kitchens using multiple camera angles so folks could really see what was going on through the process. Oh, that's fun. That's such a great... uh turn because I know you guys have done classes before and then you adjusted with the COVID and I think actually that's a happy accident, right? It made it even probably more interesting. It's it's great. Yeah. But so many people, we were able to reach more people last year than in previous years, a combination of there was higher interest. People were, were willing to try out the, the new technology, but also it's really easy to sit down and, and join in on a webinar. So you're right. There are two methods that we can use to can food, a boiling water bath canner and a pressure canner. And sometimes people ask, you know, is is one faster than another, one better than another? And it's really not a choice. uh, It's it's not a decision of, of preference or convenience. It's a simple you must use one or the other. And yeah, that's a scientific really important reason for, for safety. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we're concerned about the bacteria which causes botulism. So that bacteria called Clostridium botulinum, when it's uh, uh, put in the right conditions, such as an oxygen-free environment, like in a jar of food and sitting at room temperature and it has food available to it, it can begin to grow and produce this toxin. It's very, very potent and, and can be deadly. And even if it doesn't kill you, you can have a long, slow recovery uh, with a lot of lingering complications from that. But luckily, we know how to control that bacteria. It doesn't have to all be scary. We know how to control that. And uh, part of the, that control can include heat and a significant amount of heat. So if we're canning items that are low in acid, because acid is something else that helps to control that bacteria. So if we're canning items that are low in acid, like green beans or meat, we have to process that in a pressure canner. There's simply no other option. Mm -hmm. Whereas items that are high in acid, like jam and jelly or peaches, we can process those safely in a boiling water canner. And And what I mean by process is that the food continues to cook inside of the jar, and then we continue cooking it inside of the boiling water bath canner or the pressure canner. So, so the, um, it's the point of deciding is what a 4.6. There's a, there's, it's a formula. This is nobody's guessing you, you know, exactly. Yeah, There's what... some science based <laughs> off of this. Yeah. So, uh, so we're talking about a, a pH or the level of acid pH of 4.6. Um, so if you remember the pH scale, zero is very acidic, 14 is very alkaline or basic, seven in the middle is neutral. But when it comes to canning, our dividing line is shifted down a little bit of 4.6. And it's for that reason that if you're canning tomatoes or tomato products like uh, like salsa, we have to add additional acid in the form of bottled lemon juice, powdered citric acid, or vinegar to make sure that it's acidic enough to safely sit on, uh, on the counter at room temperature. Because there are certain varieties of tomatoes where the pH is a little higher than 4.6. So it actually falls on the low acid side. Mm. And uh, people will say, well, are there certain uh, varieties that I can grow that I know will be okay, that I don't have to add acid to? And the variety definitely affects that, but also the growing conditions and your soil, there's environmental factors that can trigger small changes as well. So to be safe, we always want to make sure that we are adding additional acid when canning tomatoes. And that's not something that everybody's used to doing. Mm -mm. Uh, That's based off of research in recent decades. So if you maybe learned canning from your grandparents or older relatives, they probably didn't do that. And that's correct. We We didn't used to do that. But now we know more of the science behind it. And we know for our safety, we need to take some extra steps such as adding additional acid when the recipe calls for it. Or uh, adding acid or doing a pre- cooking it in a pressure cooker? Or would you still need to add the acid? So we still need to add the acid because we always want to make sure that we're following a recipe from a tested source and one that's been tested in the laboratory for safety, not tested by your friend and they see if it tastes good or not. <laughs> um, So those reputable sources of information would include Penn State Extension. We have a whole series of handouts called Let's Preserve 
that give research-tested safe methods for preserving food. The National Center for Home Food Preservation is a great website. The University of Georgia has a book called So Easy to Preserve. The USDA has uh, a, a manual. So there's a lot of sources out there that are that are safe to use and that, that give reputable sources of information. And those all include the addition of acid in, uh, in tomato products. Now, some uh, will give you an option of a pressure canner or a, a boiling water bath canner. It will specifically spell that out in the instructions. There is no conversion that you can just make um, if you don't want to add the acid, well, just do it in the pressure canner for X amount of time. Such a formula doesn't exist. Okay. Got it. Because I'm one of those that, uh, canned before <laughs> you added vinegar uh -huh. <laughs> to tomatoes. Sure. We never, we never did. And, um, I do know that there's been, um, a change in, in, or, a better understanding of the science, you know, since maybe the nineties the or so, um, but that brings to question, I know the University of Georgia does um, a lot of research in this area. Do you guys work, because there's so many extensions, do you guys coordinate, like who's going to go deep in what subjects and, and work together? And, and do they, let's say somebody wants to do uh, research in a specific area, do they reach out to the other extensions and say, hey, we're, we're looking for help in gathering data, that sort of thing? So the University of Georgia really is the key player here. They are the house, they house the National Center for Home Food Preservation. It's a joint project between the USDA and the University of Georgia. And they're the ones who have the facility and the expertise to conduct most of the research that, that we follow. There have been some small research projects in recent years um, such as evaluating those electric multi-cookers that some had claims that said you could can in them. And um, the recommendation is do not can in those because they don't create the conditions uh, that create a safe product, especially when you factor in factors such as elevation. Um, so um, some folks at Utah State University tested them at high elevation and found that they did not get uh, to the temperature required uh, to create a safe product. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, so there are some smaller, you know, side projects like that. But the the National Center for Home Food Preservation is the one that really kind of owns that process. Right. Yeah. And I, it's really interesting and uh, valuable information, um, especially uh, recently because of the canning lid shortage and and mason jar shortage. People are kind of using <laughs> kind of unusual methods <laughs> to preserve. And uh, we're finding that there's knockoff sites for canning lids that um, yes. we're, we're hearing stories uh, about them. If they do get them, if they actually do receive them, uh, that they're not working. And then um, Correct. Our, our buddy at uh, reusable, you know, canning lids and uh, um and Brad at uh, Harvest Guard has the reusable you know, plastic lids. And I know there was a study done on those from, uh, from a grad student at University of Georgia. And um, they tested, this student tested three types, the metal canning lid, the glass, and then the, the plastic one. And while they all worked, they had, um, I guess, the, it's really that 
the standby metal lid that is like 100%, had 100% effectiveness. And um, part, part of it might be, I know the other types of lids uh, take a different different process, right? So the, the metal canning lids, um, you, I always I remember fingertip tight, <laughs> put it yep. fingertip tight. And then I'm talking water bath. Then you put it in a water bath, you, you know, do your thing, your process. And when you take it out, you, you don't um, tighten it anymore. You, that's it. And whereas the, the plastic reusable lids, you actually have to tighten it afterwards. And so the process has to be different, right? Because you're creating that vacuum. Uh, so do you know the science then behind the difference between the two? So I'll address just in general how a, a, a seal forms when we're using the standard two-piece metal canning lid. So we pour our food into the jar and we fill the jar to the proper amount of headspace. And the headspace is the blank area in the top of the jar from the level of the liquid to the rim of the jar. And in general, for jams and jellies, it's a quarter of an inch. Acidic foods, half an inch and low acid foods, a full inch. But there's some exceptions to that. So double check the tested recipe and it will always tell you to fill with the proper amount of headspace. You're right, when we put the, the ring band on to tighten the jar, we only wanna go fingertip tight. A common mistake that people make is they crank the lid down on as tight as they can because they think it's gonna help the seal form. But what happens when the food is being heated in the jar same, same concept if it's a boiling water bath canner or a pressure canner. As the food heats on the inside, it expands. And as it expands, the air and steam are expelled out of the top of the jar, it kind of burps out of the lid. If you crank that lid on really tight, you trap the air in the top of the jar and you don't allow a vacuum to form because a vacuum is just the absence of matter. There's nothing there, even though it looks clear in the top of a, a properly canned jar, there's just nothing there. When you pull the jar out of the canner and set it on the counter to cool, everything cools and contracts. And that's what sucks the lid down, sucks the little button on the lid down, pulls the lid down into that sealing compound on the underside of the lid and creates the seal. That vacuum creates the seal. With some, um, some like wire bale, like a hinged lid, um, and like a glass lid, you're not able to, to create that same, uh, that same vacuum seal. Um, you're correct. There are some, uh, some, the plastic reusable lids that, that, that can be, can be safely reused. We do want to stay away from, uh, it can be confusing to the consumer because there's some really nice jars that have the hinged metal lids mm -hmm. uh, or metal wire with the, 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 the glass lid. And they look great. They're really designed for food storage. Right. Not so, not so much canning. And you're correct. This year we have seen reports of people purchasing lids on uh, online that they thought were advertised to be from ball. Um, but when you look closely at the package, there are spelling mistakes. Mm -hmm. There's 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 grammar issues, spacing issues, and they are they are knockoffs. And we've heard stories of um, people use them and try them out, and see how they go, and they separate, they fall apart through the through the canning process. So our recommendation is, if people aren't able to find lids, uh, which 
just anecdotally in Southeast Pennsylvania, where I live, I, I check. Every time I go to the store, I look. Even if I don't need it, I look to see what's there. And I have been seeing jars and I was even able to buy some lids at, at my local store. So they're coming back. So if you aren't able to find lids and you're ready to, to can, there are other food preservation methods. So you can freeze food. You can actually freeze food in glass canning jars as long as it's a wide mouth jar. You don't want to use a standard jar because of the shoulders at the top, it gets skinnier. And as the food expands, it can break. Um, but the wide mouth jars can be used for freezing and you can use a used lid for that. You can freeze food. You can also dehydrate food. So uh, you don't have to completely abandon your food preservation activities for this year, um, but things are looking like they're heading in the right direction as far as supplies coming back online. Oh, that'd be great. Um, so talking a little bit about the, you know, the processing with the lid, I know even even my mom says, "Hey, I always crank down. I know you're, you know, you keep saying fingertip type, but I, you know, I always crank down on it hard like this and it always worked for me." And I'm thinking maybe we're just lucky. I don't know. <laughs> how can you how can you tell if something uh obviously if something's spoiled, you can you can tell by the the look and right. smell and whatever. But can you does can you tell if something has botulism? So um, let me answer that in two parts. So when we are finished canning our food and our jars have cooled, we've checked to see if the lids have sealed. We want to remove the ring band, wash underneath in case there's any food residue um, so that doesn't mold and dry that so that the, the, the lid doesn't rust. We want to store our jars with the ring bands off. They've done their job. If we have a good, strong vacuum seal on that jar, the lid is going to stay on. You can actually pick the jar up by just the lid, and it should hold the weight of the jar. If anything funny happens on the inside of the jar and the lid becomes unsealed, we want to know about that. And if you store your jars with the ring bands on, that can help to disguise if there's some problems. But we can't always tell if food has spoiled or it's unsafe. So botulism, for example, doesn't look any different and uh, it doesn't smell any different. So we don't know that there's any problem until after you've eaten the food and you start experience symptoms like blurred vision, slurred speech, um, numbness in your extremities, difficulty breathing, so it's really important to make sure that we're following research-tested recipes and following the procedure exactly. So when it comes to canning, it's not the time to be creative. We want to follow <laughs> the recipe as it says. Now, sometimes we can make small adjustments, such as if we don't want to put um, red pepper flakes in a pickle recipe, right? It'll, it will tell you that you can leave those things out. Um, so we kind of want to focus on just preventing the, even the issue, uh, you know, the, the potential problem of coming up rather than assessing, okay, I did whatever. Now I'm trying to look at this jar of food and see if it's okay or not, because right. it's really difficult to tell. Unfortunately, there is no telltale sign to, to look for. However, if a jar becomes unsealed, throw it away. Yeah. If we see visible discoloration, we see gas, little air bubbles that move 
throw that away. Food becomes moldy, throw that away. Right. Um, and as the saying goes, when in doubt, throw it out. Yeah. So if somebody's not sure if they used a research tested recipe or uh, they don't know where it came from, it's good to be cautious of that food. What's the, do you happen to know the numbers? Like, is this a big problem or uh, of actual botulism dying from it or getting sick from it? Are there numbers that, uh, that tell us the scope of this? Sure. So I'm not aware of, uh, of statistics off the top of my head. I'm sure they're out there, but unfortunately, uh, what happens with this is if somebody gets sick from eating a jar, it's maybe one person, maybe two people. It doesn't make the national news. <laughs> like other foodborne illness outbreaks, like if a restaurant has some kind of issue with it, everybody hears about that. Uh, so this this could also go underreported. Um, uh, Utah State University has a fantastic video. Um, you can search for it on their YouTube page with advice from a botulism survivor. Oh. She goes through and tells her story about how she used a pressure canner, but she wasn't really sure. She didn't read the instructions. She just kind of did what she thought. Um, and she she canned some green beans. And even though she used a pressure canner, she used their pressure canner incorrectly. Um, and she was in the hospital for a very long time and, and was very sick for a long time. So she wanted to be interviewed to to tell her story. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's about a nine minute video. Definitely worth, worth looking up. Oh, great. We'll check that one out because that's a, that's a good one to share. Yeah. Because numbers, even if the numbers are small, um, you know, bottom line is nobody wants to get sick and, you know, preventing that is, is key. And even if it's a small number, that small number is so much more significant if that's a death or an illness that you caused. Oh, so oh, if, if we know how to avoid it, <laughs> Um, right. why would you not want to, to avoid that risk? Yeah. And I love the fact of the, uh, advice to take the ring off of the Mason jar once it's done and before it's stored, because, um, I make caps for Mason jars, not for canning, but for after mm -hmm. canning. So once you, sure. once you open up that, you know, lid for, for peaches or pickles or jams or jellies, uh, the, when you, if you put use the ring, it gets kind of rusty. So take the lid off and, and put a recap on, and it stores. It's much nicer. Yes, it stores for, really nicely for, for storage. Absolutely. <laughs> um, one thing about jams and jellies, uh, it is: are there any recipes to to make that with less sugar? It takes so much sugar. Is this a question you get asked a lot? <laughs> There, there are, um, I, I was actually yesterday, I was in my local, um, family consumer science classroom and we were making strawberry jam with the students and you wouldn't think that students, you know, they would say like, bring on the sugar or pour some more. And they were even saying like, wow, like there's more sugar than fruit. And that's kind of what jam and jelly is. That gives the characteristic flavor and texture that said, there are recipes for uh, putting reduced amounts of, of sugar or even doing no sugar at all. You do, though, need to use uh, recipes that were specifically designed for low sugar or no sugar. Um, there are special boxes of pectin that you can purchase that 
specifically, you know, they're a different color and they specifically say for no sugar or less sugar. Mm -hmm. If you use a standard jam or jelly recipe and you use regular pectin and you reduce the amount of sugar, you're not going to end up with a good product. You're going to end up with pancake syrup, Mm -hmm. um, which it's okay. Don't tell people you were trying to make jam. Just, just say, enjoy this strawberry waffle syrup, you know? Um, so yes, it, it can definitely be done have to use special pectin, follow the recipes that come with that. And the texture is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to, to look the same. You know, it'll still taste like the fruit um, is going to be different. It's so, a little grainy. Uh, I think I've, I've it, had it before. Yeah. And it, it um, you know, the, the, the texture, uh, I hate to say chunky, but it, it just, it just spreads, it spreads a little differently. So my advice uh, to folks is, you know, obviously if you are managing a health condition such as diabetes, obviously, you know, you're, you're counting your, your carbs. I prefer to use the full sugar version, but just limit the serving size. Uh, you know, don't eat half a jar at the time, put a small amount on your, your toast or your English muffin in the morning and enjoy it that way. Yeah, good good advice. Um, talking about freezing, another example of preserving food, which um, I agree. If you if you can't find good canning lids, you know, freeze it. Um, I think I saw a um, a segment, of course, that you guys had that talked about refreezing. Uh, when can you refreeze something versus not? So uh, I'm not aware of the the course that you're referring to. However, when it comes to refreezing items, safety is not typically a concern as long as the item was thawed under refrigeration. Quality, though, is going to suffer. Every time we thaw freeze something, ice crystals are sharp and they kind of you like little tiny microscopic knives cut into the food product. That's why sometimes uh, foods can be mushier when we we take them out. However, there's some things that we can do to combat that. So for example, if we're freezing fruit, we can freeze fruit in a sugar syrup and the sugar syrup suppresses the freezing point of water. So it doesn't freeze as hard. Mm -hmm. So a great example of this is if you bite into a popsicle that came right out of the freezer, you can bite into that without breaking your teeth. It's hard, but it's softer than an ice cube, right? Because that water's freezing uh, much more solid. So uh, we, we can do things like, like freezing and sugar too, to preserve the, preserve the texture. Um, as far as refreezing, you can just, the, the quality is going to, going to suffer, but so, there's some great, oh, go ahead. So yeah. So for example, meat, uh, so you can take meat out of the freezer, put it in the refrigerator, have it defrost in the refrigerator and put it back in the freezer. We want to stay within approximately a three-day three window, mm. um, just as if you were handling the meat fresh. You really want to you buy meat at the grocery store. You want to use it in three-ish days or stick it in the freezer. We thought, always want to do that in the freezer, not on the countertop. <laughs> um, but uh, if you did need to put it back in the freezer, technically you could. However, when you pull it out the second time, you got to cook it right away. You don't want to hang on to it in the fridge any longer because we want to think about the total lifetime that it's been in the refrigerator, not just this one instance. Oh, good point. That's a great way to think about that. Um, what is and the- to avoid that? You can you can you know. 
put food in the freezer in smaller portions to start with. That way you're only pulling a small amount out. When it comes to freezing things like uh, strawberries, for example, we're coming into strawberry season here in, in Pennsylvania. You can prepare your strawberries, take the tops off, wash them, put them on a cookie sheet, stick them in the freezer until they're solid, then package them into a freezer bag or a freezer container. Then they'll all be loose and individual and you can pour out just the amount that you need. Uh, a canning jar would be great for this. Um, you know, just remember the, the wide mouth jar um, to pour out s- small portions that, that you need. Right. Yeah. What, what is the best way to preserve peppers? Um, I've canned them, I've frozen them. I don't know. I, or is it just not a good idea? You, you can pickle <laughs> them, you can dehydrate them. So it's really just a matter of your, your taste and your preference and determining what you're going to do with them. So if you want to eat them fresh with some ranch dip, Fresh is the only way to go. Um, <laughs> if you can them, you know, they're going to be soft. If you dehydrate them, you know, they're going to be crunchy um, in a different way than they're, than they're typically crunchy. Um, so you just, just find a, a method that, that works for you and something, something that you like. Right, right. Just get over the fact that if, if you want it to taste fresh, you just have to have a fresh one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, great. Um, so... You had mentioned that you're starting to see some canning jars and lids at the stores. I I am as well. And we've heard at least anecdotally from kind of from Ball that they're going to have enough on the shelves. Um, Have you actually had any conversations uh, with Ball or uh, has, has anything like formally been discussed? I've heard those same anecdotes as you. I haven't heard like a press release or, or anything like that. Um, but like I said, I've, I have been seeing them trickle back into the, into the stores, which is encouraging. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a contact at ball that you guys work with? Um, because I know they're obviously extremely involved in uh, educating. Uh, they have their fresh preserving site. They have pe- a hotline. They're actually, you know, extremely helpful with people in canning. They do. So um, there's many extension services who are in contact with Ball, and there have been councils over the years, and and different folks have have stayed in contact. I actually had the opportunity to travel to Ball's um, R&D headquarters in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, right before the pandemic. Um, That was my my last trip, Um, and it was a great one to see their research lab and meet some of their marketing folks um, and, and what they're doing. So um, it was great to great to get to to see that. Yeah, that's really wonderful, and it's nice to see that they're um, spending time on R and D in the, in that field. Um, so I understand that you, you guys have um, obviously a lot of preserving information on on your website, and are you going to be putting together some new courses? Yeah, so uh, a lot of information on our website and some new information coming out. So uh, back at the at the top of our discussion, we talked about fermentation. So we have a new um, resource guide on fermenting uh, sauerkraut and and fermented dill pickles because those are the research uh, tested methods that we have. Um, so we have some some tips in there uh, for the best success, and also we want those those products to be safe. Um, 
give instructions on how to preserve them as well. You can freeze them. You can just keep them in the refrigerator. You can can them uh, if you'd like. We also have a new guidance document on freeze drying. So freeze dryers for the home use have become more affordable in recent years. Um, maybe not affordable for everyone, but um, they're down in the range where some, some consumers are, are starting to purchase those. And that's adding a new method of, of uh, preserving food, which is interesting, allows you to do some different things and get a whole different product out of that that's similar yet different uh, from standard dehydration. Mm-hmm. We do have a whole series of webinars that we're offering this summer um, on different aspects of canning. So we have some specific topics such as canning tomatoes and tomato products. Um, We're doing uh, uh, some can-alongs where folks can register ahead of time, get the information that they need to read through the procedure, give a list of supplies, and over Zoom, we are all canning together. So if somebody has a question, uh, what's great about this, uh, even advantage of being at a workshop is they're at home in their kitchen with their equipment. And if they have questions, we'll be right there to, to answer, answer for them. Uh, it's kind of a fun course that we're doing this summer is, uh, charcuterie accompaniments. So charcuterie boards have become very popular. Um, our food families and health team actually has a, a class on how to make charcuterie boards and then the food safety team uh, who covers food preservation. Uh, we're talking about making things that would go well on a charcuterie board, such as hot pepper jelly or um, some some pickled cauliflower or regular uh, cucumber pickles that could accompany that. So those, those are fun uh, to look for beyond our, our standard uh, set of, of resources. And if people are interested in that, they can go to our website, which is extension.psu.edu and search for home food preservation and get all kinds of, uh, you know, our, our resources, our articles, we've got a newsletter people can sign up for and then sign up for those classes as well. Um, sounds like those webinars and, and Zooms and canalongs are going to be a lot of fun. And um, it, it would be nice to wrap it all up with a final harvest fest zoom harvest festival (laughs) (laughs) and and pull everything together that we uh yeah have a party yeah yeah with the charcuterie and then the all the all the goodies that everybody made that would be great absolutely yeah well that's that's really fun um well thank you for uh for spending your time with us and help helping us to learn some really important things, right? One, one thing I'll hope, hopefully get the word out on is um, adding acid to tomatoes for canning. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. We love as many people spreading that information as possible. Right. That's good. And then the fermentation side, the, uh, the sauerkraut and pickles, those are the two most popular that, that people do for fermentation. So you, you've really nailed the most important yeah, ones. Yeah, and if you've never tried fermented pickles, the, the flavor is so much more complex because we have different forms of acid being produced rather than acetic acid, which is the acid in, in vinegar. Right. Don't get me wrong, quick pickles made with vinegar are delicious as well, um, but the flavors are more complex. So um, great summer activity to give a try. Yeah, fun stuff. So um, I can't wait. I, I'm signed up for a couple of the classes that you guys have. I'm oh, I'm anxious to learn new stuff because 
um, you know, I did take advantage of the extension you know, 30 years ago, but there, there actually has been a lot of change since then. So, yeah, yeah, good. Well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time and, um, we will share your, your links and I hope you have a really good, uh, summer and harvest with everybody. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Thanks.